Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a pretty interesting founder. I think that the definitely a really interesting segment that he's tackling and, and he is definitely making some waves. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Trevor Martin. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So originally born in Atlanta. So how was life growing up there? Yeah, it's uh, very different from where I am now, but... Uh... I'm probably the only person in my family that doesn't have a uh, really thick Southern accent because I listened to too much NPR as a kid. Um, but definitely uh, enjoy going back for the holidays. Nice. So, I mean, did you have like people in your family too that was into business or entrepreneurship or or did just that evolve all the time? <laughs> no, uh, my parents are both in uh, kind of highly technical fields and like chemistry and software. Um, and then most of my other relatives are either in some sort of trucking industry or in just various kind of random fields. So then what, what got you into molecular biology? So actually when I was uh, in high school and middle school and elementary school, I hated biology. Um, I forget, maybe it was Rutherford who referred to it as stamp collecting, um, but that was a lot of my introduction to the field. Um, so I was really in love with kind of physics and chemistry, and I don't think I really understood how much those fields interacted with biology. So I always didn't really have any uh, particular affinity for biology or molecular biology um, when I was really young. And all that changed when I went to uh, college, though. Nice. So then let's talk about that. So what, how did you develop, you know, things further? And then what happened there in, in Princeton? Because it was a very nice segue into the place where everything would start for you? Yeah. So um, when I entered college, I was pretty focused on uh, physics and really excited about the obviously amazing physics department they have at Princeton. Um, but before, uh, the summer before I started college, there I got this pamphlet about this new program they were uh, starting there called Integrated Science. And I wasn't entirely sure what it is, but I knew that it would allow me to fulfill a lot of my general education requirements quickly so I could maybe focus right. more on physics. Uh, and so I signed up for it, not really thinking too much about it, frankly. Um, but as it turns out, it was a program that had been started by this really amazing um, professor named David Botstein. Um, and the really point of the program was 
to show that all these different fields are integrated, everything from computer science to mathematics to physics to chemistry. Uh, and you can actually leverage all these fields to really make huge advances in understanding biology, which at the time, especially for undergraduate education, was a, a pretty novel concept. So um, in this program, I really kind of fell in love with quantitative and computational biology uh, and started doing research very, very early on in my undergraduate career. So obviously this uh, got you from, from undergrad to graduate school. So what was that transition like? Yeah, so another amazing <clears throat> thing in the program was that uh, almost everyone in the integrated science curriculum went on to graduate school, um, whereas most of our peers were going into consulting or eye banking, especially people coming from quantitative sciences. Um, so I think that's a testament to kind of the power of the program and also the power of the kind of little community that we built up uh, as part of that. Um, so I knew immediately <clears throat> upon graduating that I wanted to go into graduate school. So uh, I went over to Stanford where I kicked off my PhD in biology in a Hunter Fraser's lab. Um, and I was really focused on computational and quantitative biology in particular, kind of an extension of a lot of the stuff I've been doing as an undergraduate. And obviously there is where everything happened with mammoth biosciences. So, uh, so how did you, you know, really come across this, this idea, this concept, the team? So tell us about this. Yeah, so over the course of my <clears throat> graduate career, uh, kind of the field I was in was making incredible advances, which are super exciting and really is kind of coming into its own. And in terms of my own uh, skill set, I really see um, a lot of my focus being on where can I bring in unique insights across fields. Um, so rather than trying to just focus on uh, being the best biologist possible, uh, maybe trying to be a really great biologist and also a really great um, statistician and kind of unifying those skills to create something exciting. And as the field is <clears throat> advanced and now really all biology is computational and quantitative biology, which is awesome, um, I felt like I had a little bit less to contribute there. Um, so uh, one of the things I started doing was, uh, first of all, applying some of these skills from now quantitative biology to even other areas like uh, sociology and uh, journalism. And I even published a couple articles with places like 538 and the Atlantic. Um, and as I was kind of going through this uh, soul searching, I <clears throat> was really looking for fields that felt like the kind of intersection of biology and physics and math uh, did right at the cusp of when that was really taking off. Um, and really the obvious answer to me is uh, the field of synthetic biology and the really amazing new tools and advances that are coming out there. And in particular, I started to get really curious about how synthetic biology could be applied to fields like diagnostics. So a field that um, until very recently with things like the COVID-19 pandemic, I think faced really uh, huge amounts of underinvestment relative to its potential. So I got really enamored with this intersection of kind of synthetic biology and uh, diagnostics. And during this process as well, I came across some uh, papers that uh, were recently published at that time by this really famous professor in the field named Jennifer Doudna, and in particular, um, led by um, some, at the time graduate students in her lab, Janice Chen and Lucas Harrington, who actually showed that you could leverage these um, CRISPR tools, which are most famous, especially then for their gene editing properties, to create really powerful uh, diagnostic tests. 
And the moment I saw these papers, I was enamored with the idea. And it was very in line with this um, thesis that I was kind of working with in my head. Uh, so I actually uh, cold reached out to uh, Jennifer and Janice and Lucas, um, looking to see if they wanted to take this to the next level. So what was that cold email like to capture their attention and get a response? Yeah, no, I mean, I think in general, cold emails have a pretty low probability of <laughs> response, usually, as anyone in the entrepreneurial space can tell you. It's all about yeah. warm intros, right? Um, and uh, I think it's really a testament uh, to uh, Jennifer and Janice and Lucas that we even got a reply because uh, they're just amazingly nice, warm people. Uh, and I think, you know, of course, like a cold email is not going to be the way you end up working together with someone, it's just the start. And I think what's really important is that uh, once we got to know each other, you know, the next few months and really uh, spent a lot of time uh, talking together and like crafting the vision for where this could go, we realized that we really had an extremely aligned vision and we also really liked working together. And that's what's most important. So then for the folks that are listening, what ended up being the business model of, of the company? Yeah, so... Um, Obviously, kind of what kicked everything off was this amazing uh, discovery around leveraging CRISPR for diagnostic tools. So that from day one has been the focus of the first products we're building. But also from early on, we realized that our thesis is even uh, kind of more fundamental than that. It's really around when you ask people, what's, what's CRISPR? They'll say it's oh, uh, kind of a gene editing tool or it's like a word processor for the genome. Um, but I think what we realized is that the way that they were able to invent this field of CRISPR-based diagnostics is by thinking about CRISPR more generally. And it's not that CRISPR is not an amazing genetic tool, it is, and there's amazing things being built in that area. But really, more fundamentally, it's kind of a search engine for biology. And I think once you start thinking about it that way, it's like this tool you can program so that it can find any sort of DNA and RNA and then interact with it. And then you can do what you want with that interaction, whether that's editing or whether that's reading it out as a diagnostic or maybe even other things like leveraging as like an antiviral or turning genes on or off. I think that's a fundamentally powerful concept. So we realized that really um, kind of Mammoth's insight is that CRISPR is this search engine. And by building kind of the next generation of CRISPR proteins, so um, we work with like Cas12, 13, Cas14, Casv. They have all these amazing properties that just aren't present in the kind of classic first-gen proteins people work with, like Cas9. We can enable these new products like CRISPR-based diagnostics and even also products that enable new things in therapeutics and editing and beyond healthcare. Um, and that's what really makes uh, Mammoth unique. Very cool. And I know that the, the early days were quite intense. So why were they so intense? Yeah, so all startups are... Uh, well, intense all the time, but especially hard at the beginning. Um, and I think one thing that's especially interesting about uh, startups in biology is that even early on, they can be uh, quite capital intensive because you it's not enough just to necessarily sit in a uh, basement with a laptop or, you know, you know, kind of on a couch and just you don't actually need any sort of office because there's actual experiments that need to get done. And there's laboratory facilities that you have to have to run experiments. And I think something really cool that's happened even in the last just like couple of years, but especially over the last five years, is that there's now um, in places like San Francisco and Boston been this whole uh, community and ecosystem that's developed around 
kind of almost WeWork type situations for labs as well. And being able to just have like a single bench and like a broader lab facility for as cheap as possible so that you can just start doing experiments and start um, actually driving forward uh, the science and the product um, without raising tons of capital, which is normally what's necessary uh, for starting, especially biotech companies. So uh, early on, definitely a lot of uh, kind of couch hopping and uh, just trying to find any place to <laughs> sleep, basically. Um, while at the same time, really putting kind of all the effort and uh, financing towards making sure that we can have the lab facilities to drive things forward to get those like, you know, first few proof points um, to move things along. And I think there, uh, that's an ecosystem that's going to pay huge dividends, I think, for the explosion of kind of startups in the biotech space in general, that um, the kind of capital entry requirements for this are being uh, lowered. So, for example, I think some of our <clears throat> first lab space was in this place called BioCurious, which is a really awesome facility where they uh, have everyone from like high schoolers who are doing kind of really interesting just side projects because they're curious about um, biology all the way through a variety of startups that are uh, also working in the space all the way through people that um, uh, have day jobs or even who are retired who just love biology and are trying to do interesting uh, things with it. And that's a really interesting community to kind of start off in because it gives you a lot of different perspectives. Got it. So in terms of uh, capital, how much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, well, now Mammoth's raised over uh, $75 million into the company um, across a couple rounds of funding. Um, Got it. And that's really exciting because basically what we can do is translate that capital into these really amazing next-generation CRISPR products that uh, we're beginning to release into the wild. And, and I understand that the way that you got introduced to your very first investor was quite a story. So tell us what happened there. Yeah. So um, another thing many people in the startup space will be familiar with is these kind of incubators and uh, accelerators. And uh, the very first program we participated in was this thing called uh, Cardinal Ventures at Stanford. And uh, it was a really great program, really kind of tailored for people that are um, still in uh, academic programs, but are thinking about kind of startup ideas and trying to learn about the space. Because I think something that can be underappreciated by people in the space is uh, there's a pretty steep learning curve for especially PhDs or maybe I'm, I'll just speak from my own experience. There is a steep learning curve for me coming from like a PhD and very academic background to just understand the lingo, frankly, like a right. safe, a note, like a cap on cap. Like, there's just all these yeah. terms that eventually you start to take for granted that can actually be a barrier to entry. So I think these kinds of a little bit more light touch, just like stepping your feet into the space can pay uh, huge benefits for taking uh, for allowing kind of more non-typical founders to uh, enter uh, the entrepreneurship world. So anyway, we're in this uh, program. And of course, like any good uh, incubator accelerator, there's like a demo day at the end. Um, and I remember we uh, presented at the demo day. And afterwards, we were approached by uh, this individual who was really interested in chatting with us more and was kind of like, I don't know if this is the right idea and are definitely what we presented that day is not what we do now. Like any startup can tell you as well. Um, but I'd really love to like learn more and like, you know, help out. And it's funny because actually some of the other people in the program 
uh, give some advice to like be wary of this person. Like they're wearing a jacket from like a big, big co in your space. Like you got to watch out. Um, uh, but we were just interested in anyone that could help us, frankly, because we needed all the help we could get. Um, so we engaged really uh, deeply with him. And uh, I think that was an amazing choice because one thing that's uh, shocked me about this space, maybe I came into cynical is that there's a lot of people that genuinely just want to help, like not necessarily expecting anything in return, um, but just are excited to see big ideas enter into real products. And like, that's the reward. And I think that that's something that's also underappreciated about the space. There's just like a lot of genuinely good people that are trying to help awesome ideas become reality. Uh, and he actually introduced us to one of our first investors, um, the, who was uh, James Courier over at NFX. And <clears throat> I remember uh, that was like a very classic meeting because we were literally in his garage in his backyard at a whiteboard kind of going through different business ideas. So that's kind of how we, and eventually we entered the uh, NFX accelerator after that. Very cool. Very cool. So, so obviously, you know, you did this accelerator and, and then I'm sure that, you know, it, it kind of like helped you guys on shaping things farther, but, but what happened next after, after the accelerator? Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, I think it's a testament to the technology that we're working with this like CRISPR uh, based diagnostics in particular that, um, very quickly, um, with, uh, Janice and Lucas, uh, graduating from Berkeley and joining the company full-time uh, as the CSO and CTO. Um, we actually uh, did our Series A uh, relatively quickly after that with a really great firm as well, uh, Mayfield. Um, and they uh, had been working with us really since the seed. Um, it had been super helpful. So it was pretty much a no-brainer for us to work with them on the Series A as well. Uh, and that's where... Uh, we were really able to start uh, scaling the company in terms of uh, building out the scientific teams and <clears throat> really starting to make these uh, products more of a reality. And I heard, I, and I've heard as well that during now this COVID, you know, coronavirus crisis, you know, definitely your your company has uh, been highlighted quite a bit, and it has given <laughs> you guys quite a push. So, so tell us how COVID perhaps you know has accelerated you know everything. Yeah, I think accelerated is a good word um, because I think uh, it's not necessarily that there are like new trends. I think it's just maybe accelerated by many years, uh, trends that were already in place but would take a while to reach fruition. Um, things like decentralized testing, owner, like individual ownership of healthcare, um, I think are trends that were there but now are supercharged essentially. Um, and I know there's like, you know, a lot of stuff in the space where companies are like pivoting into COVID and things like that. And I think one thing that's unique about Mammoth is that, I mean, we've been working on these types of infectious disease testing since day one of the company, literally. Um, so obviously we could have never guessed COVID-19 as a specific target until it became uh, prevalent. Uh, we don't have any crystal ball or anything, but the technology that we're building uh, and the way we can kind of reprogram it for different targets in infectious disease is exactly why we've been building this. Um, and I think now with this uh, pandemic, I mean, hopefully, A, we can play a role in helping to combat it, but B, I think it's opened a lot of people's eyes to um, the importance of infectious disease diagnostics and uh, kind of the huge gaps, because it's pretty, I think people are just surprised in general that in 2020, 
there's still these giant gaps in the diagnostics space. Like I think a lot of people just assumed that that wasn't the case, that we could just have great sensitivity and specificity molecular results anywhere. And that's definitely not true. And that's one of the things that we're solving uh, with the products we're building at Mammoth. So I guess uh, how, for example, like uh, COVID, like when it comes to COVID and to diagnostics, like, can you tell us like how exactly you guys are going to be playing a role there? Yeah, so um, we have two major uh, programs. Uh, one is, uh, you may have seen the news recently that the NIH awarded us a contract to scale high throughput testing um, with our CRISPR technology. And what's really exciting there is that obviously there's still really long turnaround times for molecular testing, which is kind of the gold standard testing, things like PCR. And uh, a lot of that is due to the uh, capacity of labs just to run tests. And there's a lot of really heroic efforts going on to stand up new labs um, to scale that testing. And we have a little bit of a different thesis that's complementary to that, which is what if we can just supercharge the labs that are already out there? So there's thousands and thousands of uh, CLIA labs across the country that are having to turn away, turn away tests or uh, delay the results they're giving just because they don't have the uh, throughput that's necessary. And what we can do with our uh, CRISPR-based technology is uh, really kind of two or three X even the capacity of these labs using a lot of existing equipment that they already have. Um, and I think that's uh, something that can have a profound effect on access to testing in the United States. So that's one program. The other program uh, that we're doing jointly with GSK, which is extremely exciting, we're working on also since the beginning of the, well, from the founding of the company, is uh, fully decentralized diagnostics. And I think something that sets us apart there is what we're really building is true disposable molecular testing. So there's not like a device and a cartridge and you have to you know remember to keep your device around to use your kind of razor razor blades model. Um, it's really uh, envisioning a world where you can go down to your local drugstore and buy like a three pack of these tests that are in the format of something like an electronic pregnancy test and that give you the same results in terms of quality that you would get from a doctor. Uh, and I think it's a testament to the CRISPR technology that we've invented in our building at Mammoth that it can play in these really kind of barbell opposite ends of the spectrum, everything from central lab testing all the way through to the ultimate and decentralized testing. And obviously in this case, I mean, you guys are, you know, have passed recently from the early stage to the growth stage and obviously now like ramping up very quickly, especially given all the events that are happening. So, so when we're, when, when, when you're thinking, and, and I guess for the people that are listening to when, when you go from early stage to growth stage and you have to ramp up so quickly, I mean, like you guys are doing now to really keep up with all this craziness that is happening with COVID. I mean, how, how do you go about that? Because all, also you're operating in a, in a regulated space. Yeah, um, so definitely there's a lot of items you can chat about there. I think a key one, though, for any operator or founder is um, what you focus on uh, can kind of change over time. And I think that's where one of the greatest skills uh, that I think founders can have and that definitely uh, Janice, Lucas, and myself are like constantly working on is the ability to learn quickly and also to kind of hire the best people in the world that know more than us, um, especially when you're in a growth stage. There's no way, even if you were really good at like, you know, reading books or talking to people that you can just be the expert on all the different areas that a high growth company needs to know. 
what you can spend time doing is identifying the people that are, are the world experts in these different areas and recruiting them to join you on this journey. And that becomes increasingly, increasingly important. It's important at all stages of the company, but especially in high growth, you have to be doing this at a really high cadence as well now. And you also need to have uh, kind of systems in place so that it doesn't always have to be uh, like just the founders, for example. Hopefully at that point, like we've done at Mammoth, we have an amazing executive team and uh, management team in general that uh, understands the Mammoth mission and it can also make these really amazing hires to scale the team. Although like literally every single hire the company makes in the high growth stage is critical in my opinion. So it's not just a matter of like, oh, we just hired the right executive team. It needs to be everyone in the company that's uh, working, especially when you're in high growth, you just can't sacrifice at all in terms of the quality of the hiring you're doing. And I think that's uh, maybe the key thing that at least we focus on in the high growth stage. And I guess as you're talking about hiring, I mean, this, this, now you're in this rocket ship and, you know, you guys, you know, how, how many people do you have now? Um, so we're up to around 60 people. So obviously in this process of, of hiring all these people, I mean, what have you learned about hiring? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that uh, it's especially interesting like in addition to combating the pandemic, we're kind of living through it. And it's a very different hiring process as well. Whereas normally you'd often have people come in uh, for many of these interviews. It's now like everything else over Zoom or phone calls. Um, and I think an interesting thing of that is, well, it can be good and bad. It can obviously uh, be an impediment sometimes to kind of having the more casual interaction that you might have before or after an interview that would A, help the candidates understand the culture of Mammoth and then help you understand um, how they interact with that culture as it is currently. Um, but I think uh, in general, one thing that can be good about it is it does allow you to really uh, focus on specific things. Because when you're on a Zoom meeting, uh, just kind of naturally, at least in my experience, uh, kind of lends itself to kind of more structured conversations often. So I think there it can really help you hone in on what are the key things you want to understand. And an example would be... Um, the values alignment. So, uh, you know, how do, how do they think about what's important to them in their career in terms of what values are the, are in a company that they want to join? Uh, that would be one example. And I think, uh, more generally in terms of, uh, hiring, we've really embraced a philosophy here of, uh, kind of culture ad over necessarily culture fit. And I think that's a really interesting philosophy in a pandemic as well, uh, because you have a lot of people that are, are kind of work from home or over Zoom or working remotely. And that's definitely uh, like a kind of different culture than what you'd have if everyone was working on site. Um, and I think that you can build amazing company cultures in that environment, but it's a kind of different, it's a culture ad, like it's a new addition to the culture. And if you're just trying to keep exactly the same culture that's been there, um, then you wouldn't succeed on that when you're trying to grow in this kind of crazy pandemic environment that we're in. So I think one thing we've embraced that is important to our hiring is kind of increasing uh, our love of the culture as we grow, not necessarily fossilizing the culture in place, but making the culture even better a year from now than it is today. And hopefully it's better today than it was a year ago. Um, so those are some things that we've been thinking through a lot at this time. 
Got it. And obviously, when you're thinking about culture, typically uh, vision plays a, a critical role. So, so in this regard, let's say if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up, let's say, five years later, I mean, tremendous news. You wake up in a world where that vision is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, so I mean, it means we will have made huge strides towards uh, improving people's lives by fundamentally reading and writing the code of life. So people be able to go down to their local drugstore and get diagnostic tests for all sorts of infectious diseases um, and just understand their own health. Uh, people will uh, be able to <clears throat> uh, have more advanced treatments for a variety of genetic diseases and cancers. Um, and more generally, we'll be able to interact with biology in much the same way that we interact with computers today. I mean, fundamentally, reading and writing the code of life is really making biology something that's more like software. Got it. Got it. And obviously now you've been at it for a while, you know, with Mammoth since 2017, where you guys say got started. So, you know, there's typically one question that I ask the, the guests that come on the show, and that is if you had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, perhaps that Trevor that was still there, you know, in graduate school, uh, wondering what's going to be next, what, how, how to go about it and so forth. Like, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to, to your younger self before launching a business and why knowing what you know now? Sure. That's a great question. Um, I think the key thing that's most important would definitely be, uh, I think for anything in life, not just like a startup or a business is instead of focusing too much necessarily on like specific ideas or plans or, uh, you know, uh, the blocking and tackling, although that's important, I think fundamentally where I find them most joy and also where things are most successful is when you work with people that you love working with, um, whether that's uh, kind of people at the company or that's investors or that's advisors. Um, I think the magic happens when there's the intersection of of course, an amazing vision, amazing technologies, but also something people miss is like, you really have to have that um, just amazing uh, chemistry with the people you're working with and just enjoy working with them and uh, just have a huge amount of excitement to get to work with them. Um, I think that's the key and that's what should always be considered first. Very cool. Very cool. And, and for the folks that are listening, Trevor, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, yeah, I think email is the best. It's just uh, my first name, Trevor, at mammoth.bio. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter as well. Amazing. Well, Trevor, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.